You're listening to the Domecast, where news and observer journalists take a look back and forward in North Carolina politics. Welcome to Domecast. I'm Jordan Schrader, your host, and with me today are Andy Spey, Will Doran, Lauren Horsch, and Colin Campbell. Uh, this was the week that the Me Too movement hit the North Carolina Legislative Building uh, as Dwayne Hall, a Raleigh Democrat in the House, was accused of sexual harassment, and uh, many Democrats called on him to resign. Uh, this week, we had more talk about North Carolina's gun laws. We had a hearing uh, dealing with offshore drilling and the federal government's plans to open up the Atlantic for exploration of energy. And uh, we had, of course, a filing frenzy that had uh, many, many more candidates file for office. Uh, and now every single legislative district uh, is has both a Democrat and a Republican uh, running with one small asterisk to that. Um, so, Colin, uh, the big news out of filing uh, was not so much big names, but just the sheer quantity of these candidates. Yeah, I mean, this is the first time in a long time that we've had uh, a candidate in nearly every district. I should say that there, the asterisk, uh, for those wondering, is uh, a single House district out in the Wilson area uh, that has a Democratic incumbent, Gene Farmer Butterfield, and as of now, no official Republican incumbent, but the NC Republican Party uh, has said there's an unaffiliated candidate there that they will be supporting um, and that he just needs to get the petitions together uh, to get on the ballot in that district. So that should happen uh, in the coming months, and that would mean that uh, every voter who's voting for House and Senate will actually have a choice of two candidates. Uh, in the past, there have been lots of districts that go uncontested. I've, I've lived in my house for six years, and I don't think I've ever had a choice in the legislature. I'm uh, in the district with Darren Jackson and Dan Blue, and they're two Democrats who are always uncontested. This year, they'll be contested along with everybody else, um, and it's a huge change from past years. You know, the, the process that both parties have used, I think, changed pretty significantly this year. Uh, in the past, both the Republicans and Democrats looked at which districts they consider swing districts uh, and then worked really hard to recruit the best candidate in those districts and put resources into those districts while pretty much ignoring uh, the districts where the other party uh, had a pretty sizable advantage just in terms of the demographics of the district. Obviously, districts drawn to favor certain parties. So if you've got a district that has historically voted 70, 80 percent Democratic, Republicans historically have felt like it wasn't worth the effort of uh, trying to track down a candidate there. Uh, this year, the Democrats started off pretty early on in the process, making it clear that, particularly for the House side, they had what they termed a 120-district strategy, that they wanted to field a candidate in every district. And they were able to succeed, uh, I think, eventually by putting out sort of an all-call to Democratic supporters rather than necessarily going after specific people in all 170 districts. Uh, so there are a lot of people who you know may not have a very high profile, maybe very, very new to politics who heard the call and were, were willing to uh, file uh, for this process. Uh, the Republican Party sort of jumped on board, did, did a similar thing, uh, particularly towards the end of the filing process. Uh, we saw a what uh, sounded to be, we haven't confirmed for sure that it was an automated robocall, 
uh, from Dallas Woodhouse going out to registered Republican voters in specific districts where they were seeking to recruit a candidate. Uh, and he basically offered that if you're willing to run um, and they you know, think you might be a good candidate, they're happy to use party money to pay your filing fee. So Dallas was actually, I think, down in Mecklenburg County yesterday in the final hours of filing uh, to help some of the candidates that they had recruited down in that area uh, get on the ballot just in the nick of time. So we went from, I think, the beginning of the week where there was maybe 20 to 30 uncontested races when I went through and counted to uh, you hit the last day of filing and uh, everything was contested, um, which makes for, I think, an interesting dynamic going into the election because the parties now have to figure out where they allocate their resources. In the past, it was pretty clear if you recruited a candidate you liked, you thought it was a swing district, you were going to put a lot of money into it. Um, now they have to decide, do they give everybody the opportunity to run ads? Do they uh, put the support behind each of these districts? Or do they leave some of these candidates out to dry as just a generic Democratic or Republican name on the ballot and then focus in on the more competitive areas? So that, that all remains to be seen, and it's going to be fascinating to watch because we just never had this kind of dynamic in anyone's memory. Um, I think the closest anyone had to a definitive point was uh, Jerry Cohen, the sort of unofficial historian, former legislative staffer, uh, said he, he thinks it's hard to track before 1925 if we had a legislative race like this one. But at least in the last nearly 100 years, uh, there's never been an election year where you've had every legislative district be contested. Wow. And we mentioned the Republicans and the Democrats, but we shouldn't leave out the Libertarians. There are more of them than usual, too. And there's even one uh, libertarian primary, which I think is pretty much unheard of. I yeah, for legislature, libertarian primary. I think there's also two libertarian primaries for sheriff, which is the concept of a libertarian sheriff is intriguing to me, but that, that should be a fun primary to watch. Um, uh, I think libertarians haven't had uh, they've had some, uh, according to Sean Haw, the uh, notable uh, U.S. Senate libertarian candidate of, of years past, pointed out to me on Twitter, they've, they've had a couple of contested primaries for, I think, Senate and governor, but that was at least a decade ago. Uh, but in terms of the overall number of uh, races where voters will get a choice of a libertarian candidate, uh, it's far higher than they've had in, in uh, many, many years. So that's a, a good, good year for them as well and a sign of sort of uh, third-party strength. Uh, I should also note there's uh, a provision in a p law passed last year that makes it a little bit easier for new third parties to get on the ballot. Uh, so David Lewis, the uh, House elections guy, uh, was pointing out in his statement about filing uh, yesterday that uh, it's entirely possible a third party, perhaps the Green Party or Constitution Party or one of the other ones that has a petition drive, might hit the threshold of signatures. And they could then, I think, under this law, have a party convention where they nominate some candidates in specific races and then be able to get them on the ballot by this fall. So that's something to, to watch out for. We might have a uh, second third party that comes out. Uh, and that's something to we'll, we'll be looking into to see if there's a decent shot at that or if there's a real organized effort to get another party uh, petition uh, official. And you had more people running this year. Part of it was it was easier to, to run with in terms of residency requirements, right, because of all the court changes involving districts, there is no requirement to live in your district for a certain amount yeah, of time. Yeah, that's the constitutional requirement is that you have to be a resident of that district for at least a year before Election Day. But because of the uh, uncertainty surrounding redistricting and some of the last minute court decisions uh, affecting what the maps looked like this year, uh, the court waived that requirement. So uh, there's been a lot of sort of last minute moving around. Eventually, if you do want to serve in a district, you do have to live there. It's not like the congressional districts where you can live anywhere in the state. Uh, witness the Asheville City Councilman who's challenging Alma Adams in a Mecklenburg County congressional district. That's a, a different issue. But uh, a couple hundred miles away. Yeah. yeah, but for the legislature, you do have to live in the district. But you did see um, several interesting uh, move-abouts. There were several 
uh, incumbents who were districted out of their seat. Uh, one of them is uh, Rick Horner in the uh, Nash Wilson County area. Um, he was districted out of his seat, put in a heavily Democratic district. So he found a house that he or his family owns as a rental property. And I think the small town of Bailey listed that as an address, running for office again, and has a good shot at keeping his seat. Uh, then you've got people who are moving into districts they haven't lived in before, um, most notably this open Senate seat in uh, Iredell and Yadkin counties. You first had A.J. Dowd, a prominent uh, Republican activist um, and funeral director who moved in temporarily to his funeral home in a Yadkin County town in order to establish residency there. Uh, he was up against several opponents who were lesser known. And then uh, we found out this week that Bob Rucho, the longtime senator from the Mecklenburg County area, uh, very prominent on redistricting and tax policy in the Senate, pretty uh, important figure uh, who didn't run for re-election the last time, now wants to get back into it. Uh, he's moved into Iredell County as of, I think, just this week, uh, and he'll be running uh, against Dowd and several others in that Republican primary, and that's a race where you win the GOP primary, you probably get the seed. Yeah, there's several former lawmakers who want to come back to the legislature, and you talked on last week about uh, uh, one of them, I think, uh, involving uh, a um, lawmaker who had proposed uh, wanting to print uh, the state's, having yeah. the state print its yeah, own Glenn money. Glenn Bradley from uh, Franklin County, who's running against uh, Representative Bobby Richardson, a Democrat uh, incumbent there, uh, she was, or he was known for uh, this currency proposal back, uh, I think, five or six years ago when he had a one-term stint in the House and was uh, uh, sort of the, uh, he was sort of the Michael Speciale of his time, sort of a uh, far-right member of the Republican caucus and had some ideas that uh, didn't really get traction among uh, the bulk of the, the Republican caucus. But there are several others. Uh, former Representative Mark Hollow, a uh, Republican out in the western part of the state, challenging uh, Senator Andy Wells. I understand there's a uh, former legislator whose name I'm blanking on who's uh, going to be challenging Representative John Hardister, Republican in Guilford County. Uh, so we've, we're seeing a lot of familiar names uh, interested in getting back in the game, and I'm not sure if there's any particular reason behind that trend or if it's uh, just uh, a year everyone wants to be political. We have a married couple running for the legislature, uh, one against Dan Blue and... Uh, one against, I think, Yvonne Hawley. Yeah, so they're, yeah. they're not in the same race, one's House, one's Senate, so they can live in the same House and both be running for office and not be opponents. Um, so you had them, and then the um, in Greensboro, I believe you had the founder of a group called Gays for Trump that was active back in the 2016 election, uh, who's filed a run against Democratic Representative uh, Amos Quick, I believe was the race that that is. So uh, there's a lot of interesting people running, um, and I've heard reports that we may be hearing more about quirky attributes of different candidates. And you know, I think when you when you have sort of a all-call recruiting effort and you don't necessarily vet the people you're recruiting, I suspect uh, some skeletons may emerge from the closet over the course of the uh, oppo research process by each party. So uh, I, I think you can predict there'll be news stories between now and the, the primary, and perhaps now in the election, of different folks who may have been in trouble with the law or may have some other interesting news clippings in their history that we don't yet know about, but might soon because both parties are pretty strong about uh, digging into their opponents. I think there's one notable name we kind of left off, and this might not be one some of us in the triangle know, but uh, Judge Toby Fitch is running in Senate District 4, and that was you know, that's kind of like an open district. I think Senator Horner is running in that one. Maybe. I forget who's all running because there are 474 people. Um, but Not in that district. Not in that it, district, mm -hmm. no. Overall. No, but they're overall, mm -hmm. yeah. 
Um, but uh, Judge Fitch used to be a member of the General Assembly, too, but then he became a judge, and he's at the mandatory uh, retirement age, which I do believe is 72. Um, so he's retiring and running for the Senate, and I think that's going to be a really big race to watch because he's very popular over there. Um, so he actually – he's so popular that uh, the Democratic um, – candidate who was running before Fitch announced dropped out and is running for a different race. Uh, so I think that'll be interesting to see how Judge Fitch does. Yeah. And Colin, you mentioned uh, that uh, Dallas Woodhouse, the executive director of the Republican Party, put out a robocall to try to recruit more candidates. That actually drew a Democratic complaint uh, because of the laws on robocalls and how you're supposed to uh, identify yourself, which then in turn um, got Woodhouse fired up because he received um, a letter informing him about this complaint. Um, so what happened there? Yeah, so this got ended up being a lot of uh, superheated rhetoric back and forth between the uh, Democrats and the Republicans on what was, a, I thought, a fairly small issue, but uh, they obviously thought otherwise. Um, so Dallas Woodhouse had put out this, uh, what appeared to be a robocall. Uh, the Democrats, I think, got a hold of it. Um, they didn't identify who specifically sent it to them or if they gotten it off a conservative blog that had posted the audio. Um, but they filed a complaint with the uh, NC Attorney General's office arguing that this had broken robocall laws because uh, they said the uh, call did not properly identify who was funding it uh, and who was calling. Uh, the recording of a Dallas Woodhouse call I heard clearly identified he was Dallas Woodhouse, he was from the NC Republican Party, and if you wanted to run, you could call him at this number. Uh, they may have, have a different uh, call that they're referring to. I'm not 100% positive. Uh, but state law says on a robocall, you have to have that disclaimer in there. And it's also pretty specific about you can't call cell phones. And so the Democrats were arguing that perhaps he had called cell phones. They weren't making a definitive claim that he had, but uh, thought that the Attorney General office, office should look into some phone records uh, and determine if uh, cell phones had been used on this particular call. Now, the Attorney General's office gets this, um, and they do with it. Apparently, what they do with uh, every complaint that gets filed is a form letter goes out to the person being accused to say, you've got, I think, 15 days to write us your response and explain uh, your side of the story on this. Uh, Dallas Woodhouse gets that letter from the AG's office, and he believes that it's uh, Josh Stein, the attorney general who's a Democrat, uh, conspiring with the NC Democratic Party to try to get a hold of the Republican Party's telephone records. Um, and he believes that would be ab an abuse of power uh, if that were the case. Stein's office basically says, look, we're not trying to get your records. We're just going through the, the same process we use when someone calls up and says, you know, some obnoxious telemarketer has been sending me robocalls. Can you make it stop or something. Um, so that's sort of their take on it. They said Dallas was being hysterical. Um, he continued to push the issue into Saturday, uh, called the uh, Republican committee into town, and eventually scheduled what they termed a silent march, where they were going to march from, I think, the Democratic Party headquarters on Hillsborough Street over to uh, the Attorney General's office next to the state capitol building, um, and had, it looks like, a couple of dozen people out there from uh, the news reports I saw. Um, protesting what they believe to be an abuse of power by the, the Democrats and the Attorney General. Um, not sure if there's been any follow-up on that this week. Um, we'll have to check back with the AG's office to see if they've issued a formal uh, reply to the Democratic Party complaint and whether that uh, investigation moves forward at all or whether uh, the AG's office just considers it closed once the Republicans respond. But uh, one more thing to watch and one more little wrinkle to uh, recruiting, because uh, I think uh, Dallas was arguing that uh, the 
reason the Democrats wanted to file this complaint was to uh, harm the Republicans' efforts to recruit candidates in this like final week push that both parties were having to try to get candidates in all the legislative races. All right. Well, that's probably enough for filing. Uh, Will, uh, you went to a hearing on offshore drilling this week, and it's the only hearing that is going to be had uh, in North Carolina on drilling um, by the federal government as they push to expand exploration um, off the coast. Um, so uh, what, was the, what was the sentiment there? You had both opponents and supporters of drilling um, doing sort of dueling press conferences or rallies. Yeah, there were probably 400 people who showed up to, to Raleigh for this meeting, probably around 80% on the anti-drilling side, um, and then uh, a few supporters on the, the pro-drilling side as well. Um, and what's at stake, basically, is the Trump administration wants to open up the whole Atlantic coast, including here in North Carolina, uh, to offshore drilling, to let companies come in and build oil rigs like they're allowed to in the Gulf of Mexico. Um, people who are against that say, hey, you know, just look at, you know, Deepwater Horizon and, you know, all the oil spills we've had. This is not a good idea. This is going to destroy our tourist economy. If there's ever a spill, this is going to harm the fishermen who, you know, are a huge segment of the state's uh, economy. And they were very much against it. We, uh, you know, heard uh, some pretty impassioned speeches uh, from uh several politicians and also uh, from Michael Regan, the head of Department of Environmental Quality, who uh, didn't mince words at all. Uh, you know, uh, he wasn't out there to be a bureaucrat. He was, you know, out there in more of a political role, just saying, look, we are, we're with you guys, you protesters. We think this is terrible. The state is going to, you know, do everything we can to fight this. I don't think the state really can do much to fight it. Um, Cooper has requested that North Carolina get exempted from this, uh, but I, you know, I, I don't see why the uh, the Trump administration would exempt North Carolina just because we asked him to. And uh, they exempted, or they at least said they were going to exempt Florida um, after yes. the Florida governor made a, a big stink about it. Right, and that's what we have asked to uh, say, hey, you know, y'all say you're going to exempt Florida from these rules. Why not North Carolina? The cynics say, well, it's because Trump owns a gigantic resort in Florida and he doesn't want oil spills destroying his property. Did that come um, up in the hearing? It did. Uh, <laughs> we, you, had a, you had a couple different speakers mention that. But probably the thing that people were most angry about is uh, the fact that we only had this one hearing and, you know, they call it a public hearing, but there was really no listening going on because normally when you have a public hearing, you send down officials who are, you know, in charge of, you know, making the decision and you give members of the public, you know, three minutes to give up, get up and give their little speech. Trump administration didn't send anybody down for this. They just sent down some computers and said, hey, if you feel like, you know, writing us an email, you can use one of these computers. Um, so people were mad about that. And this was, you know, the only chance that there was for that. Although I should note, you know, uh, people still can go online and submit comments. Um, How does that work? They just uh, who are they yelling at if there was just computers there? Uh, really, just to each other. There's a lot of preaching to the choir. <laughs> um, and another thing that people were mad about is this happened. You know, this meeting happened in Raleigh, which you know anyone familiar with North Carolina geography will know is hundreds of miles from the coast, where all of the people who are really going to be affected by this, either pro or con, live. You know, the the pro drilling people say, hey, this is going to create tons of jobs. This is going to be good for our country's national security. This is going to be a boon to the economy of eastern North Carolina. You know, 
anti-drilling people, you know, have concerns about tourism and environmental disasters and things like that. But anyone who wanted to, uh, to come from the coast to make their opinion heard had to travel hundreds of miles and take the day off. You know, this just happened on a, on a Monday. So uh, people were, were very disappointed in uh, basically how the Trump administration handled it. And even uh, Republican Representative Walter Jones had apparently uh, asked the Trump administration to hold either this one meeting at the coast or hold a second meeting at the coast and got shot down. Although um, he doesn't have a ton of cachet with the Trump administration, he's been one of the few Republicans to vote against Trump on some pretty major things. So, Were there lawmakers there speaking out? Yeah, uh, you had uh, Deb Butler there, who's a Democrat from Wilmington. Uh, you had Dwayne Hall, who's a Democrat from here in Raleigh, uh, who you mentioned earlier has been in the news for other reasons yes, which we'll this get week. To um, but uh, when he was there uh, at the meeting Monday, uh, that was you know before the allegations against him had come out and, you know, he had a great reception, you know, cheering crowds and, you know, everyone was loving what he had to say. Um, so. Right. Andy, so this week we had a kind of a bombshell report from MC Policy Watch, which is part of the Liberal uh, Justice Center. Uh, it's their news outlet. And uh, Billy Ball of Policy Watch published a story on Wednesday uh, about people, five people, uh, who were accusing uh, House member Dwayne Hall of various forms of uh, sexual harassment and sexual misconduct uh, involving a couple different women. Um, and uh, the Interno, um, you and Lynn Bonner, um, did some reporting along these lines, too. And uh, we talked to uh, a woman who was also in the Policy Watch story um, named Jesse White, who said that on a couple occasions he made remarks to her that uh, she found inappropriate. Uh, on one occasion, she told us that uh, he put his arm around uh, her waist and um, Policy Watch had um, some details that went beyond that and uh, quoted a couple people uh, accusing him uh, of kissing two women without their consent. Um, so all this uh, came out uh, Wednesday and immediately, in fact, as part of the uh, original Policy Watch story, uh, politicians in the Democratic Party, uh, and Hall is a Democrat, started to call for his resignation. So what happened? Right. So they were already they had their quotes ready for Policy Watch and their quotes were included in that story when it was first um, posted online. Uh, first was uh, Darren Jackson, the House Minority Leader. Uh, and then, well, and it also included in that was a statement from uh, the North Carolina Democratic Party, both saying that uh, they were uh, concerned and that he should step down. A little later in the afternoon, um, we got an email from Cooper's press, Governor Cooper's press folks with a statement from him essentially saying the same thing. Uh, and there have been others too, like John Burns, commission, Wake County Commissioner, Democrat, tweeted that uh, he also thought Hall should step down. Uh, they're both attorneys, by the way, in Raleigh. Um, so did uh, State Rep. Uh, Cynthia Ball, and um, who else? Greg Meyer. Greg Meyer. Uh, Chaz Beasley. A bunch of uh, Democratic House members uh, took to Twitter at different points yesterday. And right. it seems like there hasn't really been anybody uh, defending him. Not that we've seen. Not that I've been able to, to find. So uh, Hall himself has denied these allegations, and um, he denied them, uh, some of them, to, uh, to Lynn Bonner. Uh, and he said that um, 
he, he basically flatly denied the whole thing to Policy Watch. Um, so, we'll, but he hasn't had much of a reaction, it seems, since this story came out. Um, he's not called you back, right? That's right. Uh, we're recording this at a little after two on Thursday. Um, I think Policy Watch's story went up around noon or one on Wednesday. So it's been 24 hours, and we've reached out to him uh, by phone. We've called him. We've emailed him. We've texted him. Uh, I've, I've also reached out to him on Facebook and gotten nowhere. We've His called- legislative office was completely vacant all day yesterday. No, the door was wide open, no aid, no Dwayne Hall. So, um, so who is Dwayne Hall? Uh, Dwayne Hall, local attorney, he ran, uh, this is his, he's been in office for three terms, uh, one time named uh, Raleigh's most, one of Raleigh's most eligible bachelors by what, Ra- Raleigh Magazine? Is that right, and so yeah, we should say, he is, he is single, he's not married, although he's now engaged uh, to be married, he got engaged last December. Correct. Um, and what's he, uh, you know, been involved in in the, in the General Assembly in terms of policy and, uh, um, you know, is he... Part of leadership, or um, you know, what's he known for? Well, he's um, recently appointed by Governor Roy Cooper to lead the Courts Commission, so that's sort of the most prominent role uh, he holds in the legislature. Uh, he's been active in a lot of issues. Obviously, he was at the offshore drilling uh, right. meeting recently, mm-hmm. uh, and then has repeatedly sort of flirted with the idea of higher office. Back uh, in 2016, uh, he was briefly considering and later ruled out a run for U.S. Senate uh, as a Democrat, and then uh, a month or so ago um, said he was considering a run for lieutenant governor in 2020, although he hadn't made up his mind yet as to, to whether he's going to do that or not. For now, he was uh, running for re-election to another term in the House this year, um, and as far as we know, is still running uh, since we haven't heard from him otherwise. So, and he may have made his intentions known by the time you you listen to this, um, but uh, there's sort of this sort of sets up some some interesting politics because um, the end of candidate filing, as we said, was uh, yesterday. It was at noon. This came out just barely, you know, uh, an hour maybe after the end of candidate filing, and we hadn't really seen anybody who had uh, filed as a Democrat for for that seat. But um, then we looked at the filings and. Two Democrats had filed. So, um, Andy, what uh, what do we know about the two people who filed? Allison Dahl and Heather Mature, uh, uh, people have filed as Democrats. So, I haven't heard back from Allison Dahl at, at, as of this point uh, about her platform. Uh, but I spoke with Heather Mature last night, and Mitor, um some of our uh, listeners may know she was in the news um, briefly a few years ago. Um, because she was mentioned in the trial of uh, Brad Cooper, a Kerry man who was convicted of killing his wife. Um, she didn't testify, uh, but Cooper acknowledged uh, having an affair with her um, as his marriage was falling apart. Um, so um, the, these two people um, have filed the run, and um, if he stays in it um, and one of them wins, um, or if, well, if, I guess, first of all, if he stays in it and then eventually decides to drop out, uh, what might happen? I think the, dem- the party could appoint uh, its own person. Uh, from my understanding of the law, and we might need to consult unofficial North Carolina NCGA historian and guru Jerry Cohen. Yeah, and he's actually pointed this out on Twitter. As oh, he has. Under law. Um, so if, if Hall were to drop out now, his name still stays on the ballot. Um, so voters could choose between him and the, the other candidates, um, and then he could say he's not running as the uh, Democratic uh, nominee, uh, and then the local Wake County Democratic Party would choose someone else to be on the ballot for November, 
the same could happen if uh, if either of these uh, women managed to defeat him, then they, of course, automatically are the party's nominee unless one of them were to drop out. Um, and then then again, it gets kicks back to the uh, the county party um, because the I think the deadline to technically withdraw for the general election is not until we get to September. So there's plenty of opportunity uh, for candidates who drop out to be replaced by uh, folks from their own party. And uh, it's a pretty heavily Democratic district, I take it. I was looking this up earlier. Um, thank you, Colin, for sending me that stat pack. Uh, the Yeah, the district went was 63% for Clinton in 2016, and I think 66 or 67% for Cooper. Uh, so it's a safe district for a Democrat. Um, yeah. Assuming, you know, if, if there's a lot of negative attention to Hall and he's the nominee and stays in the race, uh, these allegations could perhaps put the Republican in a stronger place. But uh, that all is very speculative this far out because we don't know what's going to happen next. Right. And I'll say uh, right before we recorded this, I spoke with uh, Travis, I think that's his first name, Grew, the libertarian. Uh, he's out there just to give people a third option. He said he doesn't plan on um, trashing anyone's name, uh, especially this early uh, since the the allegations have come out, you know, as far as having, if he would have to face Hall. So, um, so you've talked to some candidates in all three parties. Did anybody say they knew this was coming and decided to file at the last minute because of that? No. Or are they all saying they just... Um, there's a crowded race just because everybody just decided to get in. It's a crowded race. Okay. It was, uh, I, and again, I haven't spoken with Dolls, and she filed on the last day. So, as did Heather Mitour. The, the both Democrats were the final morning, right? Correct. But Mitour said that uh, it was a spur of the moment decision, and she was not asked to run, um, but she just decided to. Um, uh, it, she said uh, she was inspired by the kids fighting for gun control. Uh, yeah. All right. All right. Well, we'll keep following that. There may even be more developments. Uh, by the time you listen to that, it's happened. It's uh, moving pretty fast. Um, so we'll take a break and we'll be right back with headliner of the week. Hi, I found a toy dinosaur over on the playground by Smith Street. Uh, it had this phone number on it. And well, I just wanted to make sure the dinosaur made it back to its little owner. When I found the little sippy cup, I just had to give you a call. It's for a kid, you know. I know my son gets super attached to the smallest things, even a fire truck, and I'd be happy to drop it off. We'd do anything for kids, yet one in six children in the U.S. struggle with hunger. Help end childhood hunger near you. Learn how at feedingamerica.org. Brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. Headliner of the week. 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 Hot. Welcome back, and now it's time for Headliner of the Week, where we pick the most important or influential person in this week's news. Uh, Andy Spay, who's your Headliner of the Week? I'm going to go with Rhonda Allen of Wendell. Her name most people probably will not recognize because she's a political newcomer, but she filed to run against Darren Jackson, the House Minority Leader uh, in the state legislature. Jackson is a very vocal Democrat, has talked about um, strengthening uh, gun laws. Allen, for her part, Allen's a Republican, is an NRA-certified firearms trainer, and she told us that she has very strong opinions of guns, um, and her license plate says Gun Girl. So, uh, during, you know, uh, in the aftermath of the Parkland, Florida shooting, it may get in, the rhetoric may get interesting around here in Wake County, and uh, in this race in particular, when they discuss guns. 
All right, Rhonda Allen in the hat for headliner of the week, one of the many candidates uh, filing this week. Uh, Will Doran, who's your headliner? Um, well, I'm going to stick on the gun topic. Um, I thought about maybe going for the 2,000 or so Cary High School students that marched out the other day, but I'm actually going to go with Rockingham County, uh, a little out of the triangle, but they are uh, apparently pushing to be the first county in the state to set up this program that allows retired cops and soldiers to come in and be volunteer school resource officers. Um, the state passed a law a few years ago uh, that allows this, uh, you know, people who are retired but still want to be, you know, kind of involved in law enforcement-esque duties can go and work for free at schools, kind of patrolling and, you know, arresting kids who are dealing drugs in the hallways and stuff like that. Um, and they... Uh, in the wake of the Parkland shooting are uh, going to uh, see if they can do that. The uh, sheriff has already said he supports it. It's going to go to the school board now. So we'll see. That might be kind of a pilot program for the state. Um, you know, obviously, as we're talking about, you know, whether or not we should arm teachers or things like that, maybe this is a, a middle ground that some people will come to. Yeah, and this is something that's been talked up by legislators. Um, Tim Moore sort of previewed this uh, last week, and then um, Phil Berger was at the press conference. He's from Rockingham County, um, so he was at the press conference where the sheriff of Rockingham County uh, discussed this. So um, I think this is going to be, uh, and like you said, they've passed this law allowing it. Um, we should also say, because we didn't mention it on the podcast, that um, Mark Johnson, the school superintendent, uh, came out this week, I believe it was this week, and said um, that he does not support arming teachers in yeah, schools. Although there was a development in that uh, this morning. He had a video out where he's doing some teacher survey type stuff and was asking teachers to weigh in on what they thought about that. So he's not, not changing his position, but certainly at least entertaining the idea from what teachers think. Okay. All right. So Rockingham County is in the hat for headliner. Uh, Lauren Horsch, who's your headliner? Uh, my headliner is actually um, the initiative to inventory uh, the backlog of rape kits in the state. And so um, this was actually mandated in the last state budget that was passed in 2017, where all law enforcement agencies had to send um, the state crime lab how many uh, rape kits they had. And these are you know, kits that are used after someone is sexually assaulted or raped and they collect a lot of evidence. It's, it's a very invasive process um, for a lot of people, so it's very, it's very hard for people to actually even get the kits done. Um, but it turns out that there, uh, there's over 15,000 um, untested rape kits in the state, and um, so there's going to be uh, – Josh Stein has actually called for uh, – Josh Stein, the attorney general, has called for uh, the General Assembly to set up a select committee to study, um, you know, what are the next steps. He wants them to create a tracking system so that they can track, you know, where this kid is, you know. So it happened in, say, Durham, and it goes from Durham to the testing facility and then back to Durham, et cetera, et cetera. So he really wants that to be in place and then determine, you know, how do we get these uh, these 15,000 untested kits tested because a lot of them are more than a year old so then they have to be outsourced because the state crime lab doesn't have the ability or the personnel to test all of those um, so it's going to be very you know time heavy because it takes six to eight months to get these kits tested um, and the, we're going to see funding allocations come out of this too so it's you know it's a good initiative the state is doing to make sure that there is justice for um you know women and men who have been sexually assaulted uh so that's my headliner of the week okay um so the fifteen thousand untested rape kits um 
are the no- nominee for Headliner mm-hmm. of the Week. Colin Campbell, who's your Headliner of the Week? All right, well, we normally don't talk about uh, county commission politics on uh, Domecast, but uh, this one I think uh, merits a special mention. Uh, we found out this week that uh, there's a candidate for Wake County Commissioner who's uh, intending to run unaffiliated uh, once he can get the signatures, and it's Ronnie Shirley, who is the star of the reality te- television show Lizard Lick Towing, which I've never actually seen, but I understand it involves uh, this group of uh, company in eastern Wake County uh, where they tow things and they repossess things, and I guess some other stuff happens. Uh, but he is going to be running for the district six seat on the Wake County Board of Commissioners, uh, announced this week in a Facebook Live video. Um, in addition to that show, apparently he was also on a spinoff called Ronnie's Redneck Road Trip, which inexplicably aired only in the United <laughs> Kingdom. Don't know much about that. Uh, but anyway, so he's going to be running against Democratic incumbent Greg Ford. Uh, there's also a Republican challenger. Um, and he had some interesting quotes. Uh, first, he says, uh, I don't sling mud unless I'm in my Dodge truck. Uh, and they also had some Saying he's not going to attack other candidates. He's not going to yeah. attack Greg Ford unless they're driving pickup trucks together and some mud gets involved, I guess. Um, but uh, he also had some what I'm sure will be a controversial statement um, uh, if this race does indeed heat up uh, because he says, quote, I stand for anti-diversity. That is the best thing I can say because I'm so tired of seeing all the diversity keeping people from meshing back together and making us a nation of one. Not entirely sure what that statement meant, but saying you're anti-diversity is something that I think a lot of people might disagree with you on. So uh, that'll be a, an interesting way, race to watch, both for his uh, colorful commentary and the uh, fact that he is a uh, minor reality show celebrity. I should note that the show apparently went off the air in 2014, uh, so he won't be uh, campaigning while also on the reality show, which would be a fascinating wrinkle of the reality show to watch, but I guess we won't get to have that. All right. This is his first foray into first politics. First foray into politics. So. In fact, he uh, says he's uh, never actually voted in an election before. Um, so this will be his first time voting and his first time as a candidate. Okay. All right. Well, um, we've got Ronnie Shirley in the hat for Headliner of the Week, along with the uh, untested rape kits and Rockingham County and Rhonda Allen, who's running. Um you know, I think uh, uh, because it was filing week and because uh, we're sort of seeing um, teeming masses of people turn out for these races, I think uh, Ronnie Shirley is probably as good as any as a representation of <laughs> yeah. the kind of... Politics um, in 2018, yeah. a reality star, make, star making controversial, quirky <laughs> statements is uh, running for office. I think there's going to be a lot of people <laughs> probably who have not voted before or at least have not been in politics before who are going to be part of this uh, this interesting year in uh, elections. So, uh, well, what the hell? Ronnie Shirley <laughs> is, is our headliner of the week, and Colin wins this week. Uh, and we'll look forward to um, seeing how that race shapes up going forward. All right. Uh, so, Ronnie Shirley is our headliner of the week, and that's it for Domecast. Uh, catch us next week. You've been listening to The Domecast, a production of the News and Observer and the Insider State Government News Service. You can keep up with the conversation by reading Under the Dome in the daily print edition or online at newsobserver.com. The Insider is found online at ncinsider.com.